Hello and welcome to In the Spotlight with Chloe Serka, the definitive podcast on digital disruption in the print industry. I'm Luella Fernandez, Director of Chloe Serka, and today I'm joined by Quentin Taylor, Head of Information Security at Canon EMEA. Today we'll be discussing evolving security priorities and what is specifically driving information security today. So welcome to the show today, Quentin. It's great to have you today. Thank you, Luella. Appreciate being on here. I know um, you've been at Canon for some time and in the um, information security space. Could you tell us a bit about your career journey and your role at Canon Europe today? Yeah, so career journey. I started back in 2000 working for a dot-com for Tango, who did online uh, photography. Uh, remember, this is before sort of like uh, Google Photos and all the other different services and, and Canon Image Gateway. This was really, really quite revolutionary. So I started back in, in Shoreditch in, in 2000, and then Canon bought for Tango. And then in 2002, I transitioned across into, into Canon. Uh, I moved into the Amstelveen office and I started the information security team there. So I was information security employee number one. So from there, I've kind of moved from there over to London. And my job title now is I'm the senior director of uh, product information security and global response. So I've got three broad areas I look after. I look after the internal enterprise information security, like any kind of CISO would do that. That's my, my core function. I also look after product security. So that means that um, I have a small team of people, which I'm currently growing at this moment in time. So please check our jobs website if you're out there looking for a product security role or a security role where you want to move into product security. Um, and I'm building a small team there and we'll be doing a lot more of the internal product testing ourselves, whereas we used to externalize that and the threat and vulnerability management across our products. And then on a global basis, I'm also responsible for global response. So, for example, no matter where you are in the world, if you report a product security vulnerability to Canon on any of the, the Canon main branded products, that will come through to my team. So my team runs the mailbox. We run the website that's about to, to relaunch. We, we manage all of this and we act as the interface for our colleagues in the rest of the, uh, the global product security and response team who are based in Japan. Well, I'm really looking forward to this discussion is because you've got some really interesting experience, both being head of information security in terms of Canon's operations, but also um, head of product and information security and global incident response. So I think you've got, you know, um, interesting experience on both sides in terms of as a, as a, as, as a user as well as um, a supplier side. So can you tell us a bit more about what you feel are the, the main challenges and opportunities around cybersecurity? Obviously, there's um, a lot of cybersecurity incidents hitting the headlines at the moment. And could you tell us a bit more about, you know, perhaps how your customers are interpreting these external threats and any support in terms of how they're, they're looking to respond to that? Yeah, before I get on to that, just, just to sort of to, to clarify with the role, because it's important for the, uh, for the people watching is essentially... I look after the internal information security as a normal head of information security does. But for years now, we I've also been in charge of looking after the security responses to all of the tenders. So if, for example, you're a customer and you're buying a print or a print solution from us um, and you've got security questions, those security questions come through to myself and to my team. Um, and just recently, we've now changed that around slightly so that I have even more responsibility on the product side whilst retaining responsibility on the internal information security side. And the advantage that that gives is that I can take the good practice that we implement internally and share that with our customers. And I, I don't want to be done, uh, uh, but I think that someday all information security teams will be like this. I, I think we're kind of ahead of the curve on it. I think having a separate 
customer security team and a separate um, internal information security team. I think having them all under one head, having them all in, in one team, able to cross-pollinate and share ideas amongst each other, I think really does help because it means that my team has credibility. When we're talking to customers, information security people, we have the credibility of saying, well, we know exactly what you do because earlier on this call, I was working on a project that maybe exactly you're working on internally as well. So it really, really helps with that credibility. But in terms of what we're seeing from our customers, well, there's all the big global stories hitting at the moment. And it's you can't even open a newspaper these days or open up a, a news app these days without hearing about the latest cybersecurity um, uh, issue of the day. I mean, at the moment, people don't realize that even certain stories that you don't think are linked to cybersecurity are linked to cybersecurity. So at the moment, cryptocurrency is collapsing down. Where's the link to cybersecurity? Well, with the ransomware criminals, with, with cryptocurrency on the way up, when a ransomware criminal takes a ransom, they always take it in cryptocurrency, that ransom is going up in value. Well, with cryptocurrency collapsing, that is essentially asset stripping the, the, um, the ransomware criminals at exactly the same time. Because a lot of them, they can take their, their, uh, their profits in, um, um, in, in cryptocurrency, but it's when they start to realize those profits, when they start to wash them through the different exchanges, when they start to want to transfer them into real cash that they can go and spend uh, down at the local corner shop, that's when they have their problems. So if you can hold it in cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency is going down, that's, I appreciate it's not good for many other people who invested in cryptocurrency, but it's also a very bad thing for the ransomware criminals as well. Yeah, and I think we'll come back to um, the, the kind of trends around ransomware because I think you've got some really interest, interesting insights on what you think the future of that is. Um, I wanted to touch a bit about on um, print security because obviously, you know, Canon, mm. that's Canon's heritage. And I know you've got some, some thoughts on where print security is in terms of the overall priority, I guess, of IT um, decision makers and CISOs. And, you know, definitely our research would show that it's um, there's a lot of awareness around it, but in terms of the overall IT information security landscape, it's still relatively low down. So I don't know whether you agree with that and you've got any thoughts in that space. Well, I do agree that unfortunately it's low down, but I don't think that's the right place for it to be. Because if you think about it, you only tend to print documents that are important. You only tend to scan documents that are important. So by definition, whatever's flowing through your print network are the important documents, the important bits of information. And then of course, attackers know this and we have seen attackers attack printers and attack print infrastructure because they understand that the data flowing through those infrastructures are probably the stuff that they want to be able to capture. And the other issue with printing on occasion as well is that it doesn't run properly within IT, the heritage of printers. And this is where I said this a long time ago. If you think about the, the movement of telephones, I know obviously telephones are now moved out completely. But if you think of the movement of telephones, we used to have these, these de phones on every single desk. Um, and they used to be wired into an exchange. And those, those telephones on every single desk were generally managed by the facilities department, not the IT department. Then they moved into IP phones, and suddenly IT departments and networks team went, oh, my God, we have to look after telephone switches as well because uh, that's all provided by my network provider. And suddenly it moved from facilities into IT, and everything was good. And now, obviously, with working from home and remote working, it seems to have moved out again. But with print, it never really changed. So we've still got situations where the IT department don't really manage the printers. And so I ask if there's anybody listening to this who's going, yeah, that resembles my company. Like, well, why would you allow 
non-IT department users or, or systems that are not managed and maintained by the IT department that have really sensitive data on them, flowing through them, um, and potentially have to connect out to the outside world, um, and they're on your network. Why would you allow this? Why wouldn't you take control of these devices that are very, very sensitive? And that is one of the issues that we have as a print industry in that we basically don't have the right people um, at the table. Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting um, view because, you know, I think, like you say, print devices are connected to the network and they have the same vulnerabilities as any other um, endpoint device. But there's still um, a lot of challenges around, you know, like you say, educating the, the end users as to the impact of potential data loss. Because, again, as you say, there's a lot of confidential and sensitive data, um, information on, on, on the not only on the devices, but those devices can also act as ingress points to the network. And, you know, I think we will we do see, do you see that as a, some, some organizations are more conscious and on top of that in terms of print security, depending on um, their, their kind of industry sector or, you know, does yeah, it- Yeah, okay. we, we talk to people in uh, finance or in government um, or military or any of those kind of areas, they're really, really on top of it. They really mm-hmm. understand what they should be doing. Uh, and that's why, I mean, we created a, a print hardening guide and we created it with three different scenarios for three different kinds of organization because we appreciate that obviously not everyone's the same. Not everyone wants to invest in a dedicated print network, et cetera, et cetera. But we're trying to say, no matter what size you are, you can do something to help secure your print network because those printers, as you say, they are ingress points. They could also be egress points. They're also, they have storage, they're computers, um, they've got lots of things open. And so it's, it's around things like understanding what's on the device and saying, do I need those services running on that device? How should I harden that? And that's one of the services we have to say, actually, we can match the configuration of the device to your security policy so that we can make sure that if you don't want things like, I don't know, FTP, I mean, they, they do support FTP because some customers have a need for it. So the printers support the whole range of customers, but as a specific customer, you're gonna have specific requirements. So you need those printers configuring for your specific requirements and your specific um, risk profile and risk appetite. Yeah, and I think that brings us quite nicely to the um, the next question is really to understand a bit more about the, the insider threats um, in terms of, you know, general cybersecurity. But I think, you know, we really do see this kind of human layer, which can be a real major vulnerability. And um, it's a real challenge for organizations, you know, even with the best technology and processes in place that it's um, can be quite difficult to, you know, protect against human error. So how do you see that companies are, your customers are addressing this? Um, and both, you know, I guess this is not just a, on the print side, but, you know, in general, in terms of their IT um, infrastructure. Uh, obviously, the, the users in the system are potentially the, the greatest weakness, but obviously, I mean, the, the old adage goes, they're also the greatest asset. And I think if you see them as the greatest weakness, they always will be your greatest weakness. If you see them as your greatest asset, well, you will start to act as if they're your greatest asset. Because essentially, the people in your company are the ones who see all of the individual things. And and I think a lot of the cybersecurity awareness and training has changed over the years I've been in the industry to go from very much more a carrot and stick kind of punishment model of do this or we'll do this, do this or this bad thing will happen to you to try and to actually bring in resilience. And this actually is a change that's also occurred in terms of um, the actual activities with respect to just security in general in that saying we can't stop all bad things getting to you you're going to get these bad things you're going to get malware you're going to get phishing attempts you're going to get key people calling you no matter how many situations and how many solutions i put in place i can't stop all of these things happening but however 
what I can do is I can say I can give you enough knowledge so that you can deal with these things and be resilient so that when something bad happens and it's going to happen, you can recover from it. And we as a business can recover from it and get back onto a steady state. I think there's too many people who get sort of like hooked up on the, we must understand the exact, um, was it, was it sort of a, a, a professor mustard in the, uh, or Colonel mustard in the, in the, what they call it, in the, in the drawing with the lead pipe and not understanding the reality. Our job as cybersecurity professionals is to get that company back up and running again and get it up and, and see what we can learn from that particular incident. Yeah, so it's not so much. I mean, obviously, there has to be monitoring and remediation, but it's really um, sort of, like you say, it's not only understanding what happened, uh, but why it happened. And so do you think that sort of links quite closely to changing user behavior? So also, you, you, the user education has to be more around focusing on that behavioral change, rather than, like you say, just providing a list of instructions and um, outcomes. Yeah, when I interviewed my uh, my current head of um, uh, of security education, the, the first thing that she said in the interview, we were saying, well, how would you how how would you what would, what does a good program look like? And the first thing she said, and it's pretty much what got her the job, was, what behaviour am I looking to change? Because if I don't know what are they currently doing, as opposed to what do you want people to be doing? Because if I can't if I don't know what that behaviour is, I'm looking to change. Then essentially, what am I trying to train people on? And this all comes down to, and I'm going to steal this from uh, from the great Stephen Bonner, who uh, years and years ago talked about cargo cults. And there's a great analogy with respect to cargo cults to user education and training. And cargo cults, I mean, I'll let people look up the Wikipedia link. It's absolutely fascinating. Came about after the Second World War, where obviously during the Second World War, large amounts of naval ships had turned up at, uh, at islands in the, in the middle of nowhere. And had turned up. And some of these people on the islands, the first people they'd met in, in many years with these sailors who had all turned up. And they had canned goods and they had modern medicines and they had aircraft and they had all these different things that were really really quite uh, uh, novel and, and, and amazing for these people in agrarian society and then when the second world war finished they broke the air bases down and they moved on and all the ships disappeared and so these local people were sitting there going hey hang on a second we all this stuff has disappeared that we used to depend upon and we liked and all these like the foods and everything's gone so these people then started to create um, like mock runways and create aircrafts out of out of bamboo and stuff like that because they didn't kind of understand the link between the fact that there was this big global war going on and why people had turned up with all these cool things that they wanted. They thought that if they could have a, a runway and have aircraft like ceremonies and aircraft landing at runway, then this would then bring everything back. Now, to bring us back to cybersecurity education and awareness is a lot of people don't understand that just because a cybersecurity and awareness education uh, training partner has mouse mats and mugs and pens and videos and everything else, they think that if they take that material, that the stats that the uh, awareness partner is showing to them saying well, 10% of people who took this training didn't do whatever, that that will then mystically and magically come to them. But they don't realize that actual fact they, they're falling into the cargo comp mentality that actually things may not work for them, that they need to understand the context of what they're doing and why they're doing that thing before they start to embark upon it with respect to training. Yes, I just really want to pick up on that point around security training um, and awareness, because I know you work with a third party partner in um, some regions in Europe. So could you tell us a bit about um, the services and whether that's more focused on the, the overall IT infrastructure or you know, more print focused? 
Yeah, no, we, so this is one of the advantages of having the security under one head so that we have the product security and the internal information security. So although it's not launched in all regions yet, we have taken one of our internal partners, NCC Group, and we've created sort of three different levels of assessment that could be very much focused on the print environment to verify that the print environment is safe and secure, that uh, the perimeter around the print environment is safe and secure, uh, and then there's some other sort of additional services that uh, that can be brought in and that's really to to help customers now not all customers are going to need this many customers may have their own significant cybersecurity um, uh, team but let's be really clear here it, it's very very um, easy to get lost in like the twitter or social media echo chamber and believe that every single corporate has a, a cybersecurity team a lot of companies don't have cybersecurity teams and they're relying on third parties so that's why we saw well, hang on a second if we're putting these systems in place let's help you out and make sure that we have a trusted third party who can actually do the assessment for you and make sure that uh, your um, print environment is as secure as you need it to be. Yeah, and I think, you know, in terms of what we're seeing in, in the industry is that, you know, a lot of the um, traditional print manufacturers are you know, acquiring managed IT service providers they are moving to, um, you know, expand their I suppose, their, their reach and their influence beyond traditional prints. And, you know, I think Canon's approach is really interesting is that it's working with established partners in that space because, um, you know, typically a traditional NPS provider wouldn't have the expertise um, to do these kind of assessments. So, um, you know, yeah, I think I've always been really interested in Canon's approach there um, in Europe. You know, I appreciate it's not available in, in every region, but I think it makes a lot of sense to, to really partner up um, and, you know, leverage those resources and skills to you know, create a more... And by the way, that's part of a, a suite of services from mm-hmm. uh, managed print profiles to um, uh, assessment, or, as I said before, the, the hardening service. Mm-hmm. So this is all part of a whole suite of services that are available that my team and the business team is all behind. Um, and so my team has been consulting on some, helping develop some other services. So this really is the sort of the expertise of the internal information security department being offered out to our customers. We've been doing that for a while, but now it's becoming very, very overt that it's the that it's the experience of the internal team being provided to our customers as a value add. Yeah, no, I think that's great. You know, like you say, it really demonstrates how that kind of bringing that sort of internal team um, outwards facing as well. You know, you've just got the the, the, the skills and the expertise to, to actually deliver that from from the, you know Canon's experience on on both sides. So, um, and I think you know I just really wanted to pick up on you know those kind of general cybersecurity trends because you know clearly over the past couple of years digital transformation as we all know is accelerated and cloud has been you know quite critical to enabling that digitization. And I wanted to just really get your your views on cloud and cloud security and whether you're seeing that cloud is you know, potentially more secure than, you know, the traditional on-premises environments and perhaps what, you know, opportunities and challenges as well are around securing this kind of new hybrid working environment. Yeah, so to take cloud first and I'll do hybrid working afterwards. Um, I think the big thing with moving to cloud is you've got the huge advantage that your partner, if chosen correctly, is able to apply security configurations across the entirety of the estate in a very, very consistent manner. They're able to take the lessons from one customer and apply them across the estate to to all customers. They're able to deploy security at scale in a very, very standardized manner, which is really, really, really important. Whereas if we if we you have to do everything on premise, whilst you may have that 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 belief that well it's only on premise, therefore it's a lot more secure than stuff that's out in the cloud, it, it 
is it really? Are you able to learn all the lessons from all the other customers and implement it in? Are you able to, to keep the data as secure as you, you think it should be? Are you able to, um, uh, to back up all of that data? Um, do you have enough storage to back up all the data and then you've got to do all the testing yourself? Whereas if you stick it all out in the cloud, I'm a, I'm a great proponent in cloud, is the security doesn't get lower or, or higher, actual fact. I think it's roughly the same, whether it's on-premise or out in the cloud. It just gets easier out in the cloud and get cheaper out in the cloud. And it is obviously the future. I mean, if we think of many years and years and years ago, companies used to have a CEO and the CEO stood for chief electricity officer uh, because companies should generate their own power. And now you'd never ever consider generating your own power. You have somebody else do it and it comes into your house. Whereas in the, I'm going back hundreds of years here, people used to do it themselves. Well, now that's no longer done. And I think cloud is exactly the same thing. That why on earth would you struggle implementing your own solutions, um, uh, patching your own solutions, managing your own solutions, when actual fact, you can pay someone to not just do it for yours, but to do it for all of the rest of them and do it in a very, very standardized manner. And then when you were also talking about uh, this hot sort of whole hybrid working, I mean, I'm typifying at the moment, I'm currently sitting in my home office and then about an hour's time, I'll drive into the office because I've got a face-to-face meeting this afternoon. Um, now, Really, we've seen this this huge move from our customers from actually from from work in the office to work anywhere, and and Canon's really supporting this with things like Uniflow Online to make sure that if you need to print or scan or copy, no matter where you happen to be, if you have a compatible printer sitting at home, it can be part of the overall your your company's cloud um, if that's configured in that particular way. Meaning that when you press print on your PC, whether you're in the office or you're at home, it really really makes no difference. And Uniflow Online, you can then decide to pick, pull it down to your home compute home printer and then all of the other security features that we all know and love from uniflow online that the tracking um, the analysis of the data etc 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 can actually go on the uh, on the home printer as well as on the um, the corporate printer inside that seems to be what we're seeing in terms of you know particularly with cloud print um, adoption increasing and with hybrid work, you know, definitely organizations are, you know, accepting that, you know, some of their employees want to work from home and then how do they manage and control printing when it does happen from a remote but location. A hybrid work as well. I remember I used to work for um, a, a company that had a recovery services arm. And I remember decamping down into uh, Docklands somewhere to a super secret location in Docklands where some of the uh, the, the, the customers' uh, representatives would be there. And we would then recover some Sun E450s and set up a whole load of PCs so that in the event of a disaster, whatever disaster it's going to be, that 200 of their chosen people could work from this office. Well, now everyone just works from home. You don't need to have this, this hot standby site that you're paying a fortune for to exist there doing absolutely nothing for well, pretty much every single day of the year. And so allowing people to work from home suddenly has a huge advantage in your company in that if you were to lose your corporate headquarters, if all your servers are in the cloud and all of your employees are working from home, it becomes, as long as you've not lost any life, it becomes a cost. It doesn't become a disaster for your company. And I think that's one of the things, one of the positives that's come out of this whole pandemic is a lot of companies now in their risk rate register have said, actually, we can all work from home. We can be effective with the entire company out. If we were to lose a building, as long as we didn't lose any people in that building, it really wouldn't be the disaster that we thought it was in, in the past. Everyone would just continue to work from home. They'd log into their services online and work would continue. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually, because I think, you know, they 
cloud has really kind of earned its stripes, hasn't it, over the past couple of years. It's really helped organisations stay operational. And as you say, it's reducing risk um, as well, which is really important. And I, you know, I think obviously we can't have the cybersecurity discussion without talking about zero trust, I don't think. I think it's become a real buzzword over the past 12 months. And again, I'm interesting, interested in your views on zero trust because I feel um, it's become quite a nebulous concept and you know, everyone's using zero trust as a bit of a marketing hook, especially um, with print. It's very you know, it's not always obvious to sort of see the um, how it's aligned. So I know you've got some thoughts on that. So be, yeah, if you could share yeah, um, sure. your views. Yeah, so zero trust to me is one of those very annoying concepts because it's it's something that's been around for absolutely years. I mean, from the days of the Jericho Forum and the deperimatization of the network, um, which I also thought was a great idea. And I think the zero trust is a great idea, but I think it's it's a concept. It's an architectural concept that you apply toward, you, you, you lean towards rather than a particular product that you buy. And I think a lot of people have tried to sort of um, turn it into something that can be neatly boxed, shrink wrapped and, and shipped to a customer. And we're trying to say, no, actually, it's how does this solution comply to zero trust principles? And sometimes things can very easily comply to zero trust principles, especially when they're moving into the cloud. That's kind of a, a default there. So it's very much more easy to, to implement. And sometimes, especially when you're linking into legacy infrastructure that can't do some of these things, you just have to say, well, we have the principle of doing this, but because of that legacy infrastructure that's going to cost the customer X number of millions to replace, uh, and we can't, um, therefore it won't be implemented in this particular area. So I think as long as you recognize it as an architectural principle that you will try to go towards, the default will be that you will implement the architectural principle, but then for very good reasons, you may not implement it for, very, for various different things, especially when dealing with legacy infrastructure, you're all going to be good. Yeah, so kind of proceed with caution with zero trust. I think it's, you know, it's one of those things, like you say, it's it's really a set of principles and a concept rather than an actual product or solution. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, we've covered some really interesting topics and it's really interesting to hear about Canon's approach and how you're using your internal expertise around cybersecurity to, to really sort of help um, the product strategy at Canon as well. So, um, you know, I suppose looking ahead, there's always going to be new threats and risks emerging. What's next for the cybersecurity market and also for Canon in this space? So if I take what's next for the cybersecurity market, first of all, I think that cyber extortion, I think we haven't really seen the start of cyber extortion. I say cyber extortion rather than ransomware because the where bit of ransomware indicates that there's going to be some kind of program doing something. I think we're going to see programless um, uh, uh, cyber extortion. I think we already are seeing that where people are just literally breaking into companies, stealing the data and then offering it up uh, for sale. Um, we've, we've seen that with a, there's a spa in Oregon where the, uh, the attackers decided to uh, put a little portal up to say, hey, if you're an employee, click here. If you're a customer, click here. And you can download a, a copy of the data that we have put online. And by the way, anyone can do this if they know your name or they can just search through the names. Um, and I think we're going to start to see an awful lot more pure play extortion starting to come up. We've also seen with the government of Costa Rica getting hit by uh, ransomware initially and then getting hit again by, ran by different ransomware immediately afterwards. Um, and we've even seen the president of Costa Rica have to declare a state of emergency. And that really was quite serious down there. I think we're going to start to see a little bit more of that um, taking out a nation state because even a 
um, a small nation state um, has more money than possibly even but the largest of corporates. So if you think about it from, a, from a, an amount of uh, cash floating around that, that could be taken perspective, a small nation state actually probably has an awful lot more free cash than, than even, even some of the larger corporates apart from the, like, the mega giants that we, we hear about every day. I think that's what some of the attackers are going to start to lean towards. Um, and I think the extortion angle is really, really where people are going to be focusing. I'll be very curious what's going to happen, as I said at the beginning of this, at this session, about what's going on with uh, cryptocurrency prices going down and down and down and down. Because, of course, now if I'm a, a ransomware operator and I can see that every week the cryptocurrency prices are dropping by uh, double-digit percentages, do I have to increase my prices dramatically to be able to account for my losses? If if my uh, if my uh, my fees if my brokerage fees to convert that cryptocurrency into something that may have a little bit more long term um, stickiness as an asset are going up and up and up, am I going to have to suddenly increase in the short term my costs? Uh, and I think this is really where we're going to start to see some very interesting moves uh, from the cyber criminals in that particular respect. Although hats off to. Um, uh, a few days ago, um, uh, Europol uh, announced that they had um, secured, I think it was 1,900 and something arrests, uh, identified 3,000 suspects in social media scams. So it's absolutely awesome to see people like uh, Europol not just focusing and taking out the big mega gangs who you hear in the newspapers, but taking out the people who are doing the Instagram scans, the Facebook scams, to take to those like the, the smaller operators who have a real impact on real people's lives. Yeah, and I think, you know, like you say, cyber, um, cyber crime is it's like organized crime, but it's starting to filter down to um, some of these, you know, I suppose it could still have a huge impact, even though it's, you know, affecting us on an individual basis. And I think, you know, the fact you mentioned, you know, ransomware, um, it's not going away, away, but, you know, definitely that, that sort of transition to cyber extortion is really interesting. And I'm definitely going to be following that more. And, you know, I think the nation states rather than corporates, um, trends will be another interesting well, one. I think they'll still continue mm. to hit corporates because mm. corporates don't have armies and stuff. Um, but I think we're going to now start to see more and more and more nation states. I don't think they're going to flip from corporates to nation states. I just think that the bigger groups are going to start to look at potentially third world countries to say, where where can we start to extort pure play in those areas uh, as a couple of big hits there might be all we need for the year or all we need for a couple of years to 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 make significant profits yeah and i think it's you know kind of circling back to the kind of the the cybersecurity um, impacts around print. You know, I think print is always the kind of poor relation of the rest of the IT infrastructure. But as we mentioned, you know, it's still not easy, but it's you know still possible to um, use um, a connected print device or MFP as an attack point. So I think you know it just really reinforces the need to have you know that um, the strength of that security chain has to include um, you know the, the print devices. So um, on that exact same topic, we've been doing some analysis of um, how many of different printers are directly connected to the Internet. And that's a really, really scary topic. That's customers um, directly connecting their own printers directly onto the Internet, 
sometimes with authentication, sometimes without authentication. Um, and that's of all different manufacturers. And so when you look at the kind of different kinds of IoT that are connected to the internet, it's really a customer educational journey to really get the customers to understand that they need to be aware of their perimeter. That's one of the things that we have in the security service. We say, look, be aware of your perimeter. If you're a small company or a big company, it doesn't cost a lot of money to be aware of how you look like to an attacker. You you would never, I mean, I don't know about you where, where, where you live, but you you often you'll check to make sure your car doors are locked at night you'll if you're going on holiday you'll do a quick scan around your property just to verify that all the windows do appear to be locked whereas a lot of companies are operating and they're not checking their car doors at night and they're not doing a scan around their property to verify that they haven't got a window up there that's completely open to the outside world and so it's not just printers there's other iot in there as well but this really is an educational aspect for customers to say actually this this is your responsibility you you do need to know what you look like to attackers the tools are out there the tools are not expensive and you can scan yourself just to verify is my is my door open is my window open yeah and I, you know i totally agree and i think it really comes back to that point of having those assessments using third parties with that expertise to actually um, you know review and you know do a comprehensive assessment of the whole um, environment because like you say there are other IoT connected devices and I think particularly the move to smart buildings and having sensors and you know other forms of IoT connectivity um, you know the risk becomes even greater. Yeah it gets scary when you when you realize that building management systems are connected to the internet and you start going wow on a big building, especially the brand new big smart buildings, if you can control yeah. the building management system, that's when it starts becoming almost like a movie plot kind of uh, um, um, esque. Yeah, no, I think it's been really great. You've been, you know, I really appreciate you joining me today because um, I've been wanting to get you on the uh, podcast for a while because I know you've got some really, you know, like we've seen valuable insights from both the end user perspective, but in terms of you know, Canon's um, strategy and how it's helping its customers as well. So um, just on a final note, I'm asking this to all guests and I know you talked a bit about your career journey, but what was your, your very first job and what lessons did you learn from that? Yeah, so my, my very, very first job, I was um, first proper job. Uh, I was working not a million miles away from here, which is really surreal because where I currently live and where my first proper job after university was literally are not uh, within a few miles of each other. Uh, and I never thought I'd end up back in this part of the world. So I ended up working for um, um, a, a little company that did everything from engineering in Africa to golf clubs to uh, advertising all in the same sort of thing, a family company that did all of this. And I was doing a lot of IT support. Um, and I think this is the thing that I learned from there is sort of understand your value, understand what you can actually provide to individual companies and never, ever undersell yourself. And to be honest, I look back at those times with, uh, with, with fondness as that was a really good stepping stone. My first ever sort of IT job, I had enthusiasm and I thought I had lots of knowledge, but now when I look back, I obviously probably didn't have as much knowledge. And I, I learned an awful lot of Novell Netware um, and a lot of token ring networking, um, which I've never used since, thankfully. <laughs> no, that sounds familiar because I did a computer science degree and uh, there's a lot of, uh, not useless knowledge, but a lot that you know, I don't use. But again, it's really, I think it's a really interesting industry and there's always you know, so much to learn. So that's why I'm, I'm very passionate about it, and, you know, particularly um, in the print industry. So thanks again, Quentin, for, for coming on today. It's been really interesting and some really great insights. So yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me. Thank you, I appreciate it.
So thank you for joining today's episode of In the Spotlight with Quocerca. For more information, please visit quocerca.com and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks again for joining and I look forward to seeing you in our next episode.